Jesus Christ is the most popular figure and his, historical person in, in, just, in, the, in the history of the world. And it's not even close. It's not even like a close second or anything like that. I know the Beatles one time said that they were more popular than Jesus. But it's not actually true. He, Jesus is the most sung about, taught, listened to as far as his teachings, uh, the most worshipped, the most um, believed in, the, his, his name appears in the most things in, in, in all of history. He has influenced more things in history than anyone else. Even just the way we use our calendar, right? The year that it is, is based on him. B.C., before Christ, A.D., uh, Latin for Anno Domini, which is, which is the year of our Lord. So even just our calendar goes around him. Jesus Christ has influenced culture. He's influenced all sorts of music. He's influenced medicine. Hospitals have been started in his name and that kind of thing. He's influenced education. A hundred of the first 130 universities started in America, 100 of them were founded by Christians for the purpose of training people to know Jesus. So um, there's some really deep roots where Jesus has touched all of Western culture. And, and now there's, you know, billions of people ar- around the world in all, in all sorts of countries all over the world who, who honor him, at least 1.7 or something, that would claim that they're, uh, that would claim a relationship to Jesus Christ. And here we are 2,000 years later from when he walked the earth, and we're still meeting in the movie theater talking about him. So my question is, what's all the fuss about? Like, What's the big deal about this guy? And you may feel that way too. You're like, church, Jesus, why, why, are we making a, why are we making a thing out of that? What is all the fuss about? Because if you look at his biographical sketch, there's some questions in there that sort of come up. Like if I could give you kind of the history of Jesus, he's born in about 5 BC. I know that the calendar BC, AD, how's he born five years before he's born? It's not, it's just a calendar thing, but it's roughly four to six, somewhere in there, they believe that Jesus was born four to six BC. Jesus was born... And most of his childhood and most of his adulthood, we don't know a lot about. It was maybe rather unremarkable. There's a couple things recorded for us. But he grew up, um, and he was, born, he was born in Bethlehem, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem, which is a decent-sized city, but nothing massive. And, and Jerusalem's in Israel, which is a really insignificant part of the Roman Empire. It's not Egypt. It's not Italy. It's not these places. It's just this one little spot. So Jesus is born in a fairly, in the sticks, in a fairly sort of out-of-the-way place that's not important. And he's born in the, in the Roman Empire. And he grows up, does his thing. His dad's a carpenter. His father Joseph is a carpenter. Uh, and so he learns carpentry, carpentry trade. And, and he grows up in Nazareth, which is outside of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. And he works his trade there, maybe carpentry, maybe a little stone masonry doing those things, and kind of grows up doing that. And then around 30 years old, Jesus starts to preach, and he goes to the area around the Sea of Galilee to a lot of villages, and he starts teaching people about Jesus. Now, lots of people did this in the first century in the Jewish world, lots of rabbis, teachers, you know, scholars. So he would go around, and he started telling people about God. And there was something different about the way he talked. There was something that you were like, whoa, this guy has some authority. Like, whoa, this guy is connected to God. Like, what is going on? There was something powerful about the way he talked. And as the accounts of of his life are recorded, there's also some things he did that were pretty incredible. He walked on water. He he spoke to the wind and the waves and made them stop at one point. Like, he healed people of diseases. So it wasn't just his teachings that were so powerful. It was the stuff he did as well that people were like, whoa, this guy is different. 
And then at around 33 years old, Jesus goes to Jerusalem as he did several times a year, as all Jews did. They went to Jerusalem and he went for the Passover celebration. And at this point, Jesus has a massive following of people who are his disciples who are walking with him. He goes to Jerusalem and uh, even though he was teaching God's love and all these things, there were people that were threatened by it in the religious establishment of the day, of the Jewish people. They were threatened by him, and they conspired together in a co-conspiracy with the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. The two of the, those two groups kind of came together and had Jesus killed. Jesus was publicly executed in the Roman way of crucifixion, where they whip someone, and then they put nails through their, their wrists and through their feet and hang them on a cross or hang them on a tree. He was hung outside of Jerusalem on, on the road so that anyone who passes by on the road can see, hey, this is what the Romans do. This is what we do to, our, to traitors and to criminals. We hang them, so you better, you, know, you better recognize our authority. So that was done. And if the story ends there, we're not still talking about it today. But the next part of the story is that three days later, Jesus actually, he was buried and he comes back from the dead. And, and it wasn't just like one person saw that, like hundreds of people saw it. And so those hundreds of people then went out from Jerusalem believing that Jesus had died and come back from the dead. And they went out and they started telling people about that all around the ancient world, all around the, the Mediterranean Sea. And they formed these little spiritual communities, these little, these little groups of people who were coming together saying, wow, Jesus died and, he's, and he came back from the dead. We believe this. And they adjusted their lives and lived accordingly. They lived counterculturally to all of the Roman Empire around them. And that little group of followers that spread out around the Mediterranean started what we now call churches. They started these communities. And those communities grew and grew as, as they followed this Jesus guy who had died and come back from the dead. And it grew from a couple hundred people in about 30 AD to about 30 million people 300 years later. And so it was really incredible how, how this faith spread. And so today, and it has continued to grow, it went out from the Middle East into India to Africa, over to the, the New World, uh, out, out to the Far East. Like it, it continued to grow and spread out around the world until today you have what Christianity looks like across the globe where it has sort of infiltrated and, and, and gotten a foothold in so many cultures around the world. So what's all the fuss with Jesus? I mean, still, at the end of the day, this Jewish carpenter guy... You know, um, and he did some maybe some amazing things. Why, why are we still talking about it? Well, today I want to explain some of that. And my hope is that you will get a good sense of Jesus this morning. That you're not going to hear me or remember me or anything I'm saying. But what you will walk away with is, I get this Jesus guy. And I understand what the big deal is. And more than that, I hope that you'll want to follow him. And, and, and give your life to him if, if, you haven't, if you haven't done so. But to show you Jesus, I want to point to the book of Colossians. We started it. Uh, here recently, and we're, we're reading through it till, till Easter, and we're, it's a series that we're calling Rooted, and we're talking about what it means to be rooted in our faith. And Paul, the author of that book, he was one of the people that went out and planted churches around the Mediterranean Sea. And as he did that, he, he would write letters to them. And, and Colossians is a letter he wrote to the church at Colossae, which was a city in south-central Turkey. And it's a city he had not visited and, and planted a church in. His friend Epaphras had planted a church. Epaphras comes and visits Paul in jail and says, hey, the church I started in Colossae is going really well. Paul writes him a letter, and we have that letter recorded for us. And there's a lot of great things in there. And what Paul goes into in this first chapter that we're looking at today, what he goes into is how important Jesus is to remind these folks, hey, Jesus is really where it's at. And, and to do that, what I'm going to read to you, what Jordan just read to you, 
is uh, Paul basically quotes a hymn or a poem that would have been popular already amongst these Christians. And he uses that, the wording of that, to, to point to the preeminence of Christ. And so I want to read it to you, Colossians chapter 1, but let me pray before I do. Lord, I pray that today we get Jesus, that we understand who he is, what he's about, and what difference it makes in our lives, even thousands of years t- uh, later today. Um, God, may Jesus shine through all of what we're talking about this morning. In his name we pray, amen. Colossians 1, verse 15, he is, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to, uh, yeah, actually I'll stop right there. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. First point I want you to understand, Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus shows us what God is like. What Paul says here is echoed in the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Some people think Paul did. Some people think someone else did. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, listen to the way that says it. it says, talking about Jesus, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the exact representation, the exact imprint of God here on earth. And so he shows us what God is like. He is God in the, in the flesh. If you want to know what God really is like, you have to look to Jesus. This is a revolutionary idea in history. In the ancient world, in Rome, you have Roman and Greek gods. You got you know, Zeus and Apollo and Mars and all these gods. And the Romans kind of adopted Greek gods, so they had their own Roman gods, they had Greek gods, they had all these gods who are separate from us who, who do not dwell with the land of the mortals, you know, so there's a separation, and they're worshiping those, and then Christianity comes along, or Jesus comes along, and it's like, no, gods are not someone out there. God is actually here in the flesh. This is actually God walking around, which is an, is an incredible thing. In, in, in Hinduism today, you don't, you don't see that. You have 300 million gods. You don't have an exact representation, though. In, in Islam, you have Allah, the God who's distant from us, right? You have Muhammad as prophet, but Muhammad never claims to be God. He claims to be a prophet who, who points us to God. And, and what is so unique and different about Jesus is that he comes along saying, hey, if you want to know who God is, look at me. I, I am God. And Paul uses, in this poem here, he uses this language, it's, he's the firstborn of, from among the dead. First to come back from the dead, yeah, you can look at it that way. But the word firstborn, we think of it as birth order. Oh, he's the firstborn, he's like the oldest child in the family. It, it can mean that in scripture, but it can also mean he is more like the source or the preeminent figure in, in, in the whole thing. Um, and so... I think you see that in the Bible. In fact, if you open up the Bible to the beginning, past the table of contents and all that, you just go right to Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible. Listen to the way it opens. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So God, at the very beginning, he creates, and if you look closely, these are just the first three verses of the Bible, but if you look closely, God is, the idea in Christianity is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this Trinity, right? You may have heard that before. 
All of those are represented in the first three verses because it says in the beginning God created. There's God the Father is creating. The Spirit of God is there, this Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, like this wind of God, right? And then at the end it says, and God said, God speaks, let there be light. And if you go over to John in the New Testament, John's book opens up very similar to Genesis, but John says, Jesus is the Word of God, the, the spoken thing. So even in this idea in Genesis that God speaks, it's, it's maybe a little reference to, hey, Jesus is there too. Jesus is there at the beginning. He is there for the creation. He is there putting things together. And Paul tells in Colossians, Jesus creates the visible and the invisible things, which means, if we want to get real sciencey here for a second, all the things you can see, Jesus created. The, the planets and, and, and the, the, the building materials and other people and all that. Like, Jesus created all of these things. That's cool. And then the things that are harder to see, like through a microscope or through a telescope, Jesus created that stuff as well. And then all of the things we can't see, Jesus created that stuff as well. Love, joy, and peace. Can't see them. You kind of know them. You can kind of feel them. But Jesus creates that stuff. Or even, we'll get Neil deGrasse Tyson here for a second, the, the things like dark matter and dark energy, which scientists say these things exist, and they show up sort of mathematically. We don't know what dark energy is. We don't exactly understand dark matter. We just know mathematically it has to be. There has to be this thing. Whatever that is that we don't have the right instrument to even understand, Jesus created that too. So he is the creator of, of all of these things, and he, he didn't just create them. Uh, the scriptures in Colossians tells us that he, he, in, he holds all these things together. He sustains them, which means the, not just creating you, but the air you breathe right now, all the breaths you have taken today, you are given those by God. He gives us the air. He, give, he holds the planets in space. The earth is the perfect distance from the sun for our survival. Now, you may be skeptical of all that, and you're like, Chris, Jesus doesn't hold the universe together like gravity holds me in my chair. There's other forces like, and I get that. I've had science class also. Um, I've watched Nova a couple times. Like, I, I, I get it, right? Like, I understand the biology and astronomy and, and those sort of things. Um, and, and, I, and I really enjoy that stuff. But I would just say that science is really good at describing maybe how some things work and what is, but it doesn't describe who and why it is. It doesn't, it's not trying to do that. So you can tell me, no, Chris, the universe was created 13 billion years ago with some sort of big bang. And I'm just telling you that scripture's reminding us Jesus is the one who gave the order for it to go bang. Okay? Jesus was there giving that word and saying, this is how we're going to do it. Let's, let's make it. Let's make it happen. And so every moment you have, every smile you get, every moment of laughter, every, every time you have joy, every time you see a mountainside and, or you stand by the ocean or you hear music that just moves your soul, Jesus is in, in those things and is in, at working in all of those things. He gives to us what theologians call common grace. God has given that to all of us to, to enjoy. Now, if that seems to you like a lot to place onto the shoulders of a 2,000-year-old Jewish carpenter, I would say maybe it's time to update our idea of what that Jewish carpenter really was all about. He's not worshipped because he was a good Jewish carpenter. We don't love Jesus for his end tables and how good they were. He's worshipped because he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Verse 18 also tells us, 
And he is the head of the body, the church. This entire movement of God that we are a part of thousands of years later here in the Bird Theater, uh, Jesus is the head of that thing. If you were to draw an org chart for this church, for Area 10, Jesus is at the head. I, I may have a title lead pastor here. I'm not the head. I'm at best, I'm like a mouth, right? I'm like a talking part or whatever. Jesus is the head of this thing. He is over all. This was his idea. We follow after him. So Jesus is the head of the church, um, and so we, we look to him as creator, sustainer, and as God in the flesh. He shows us what God is like. If you want to know how God would handle things, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God treats women, look at how Jesus treats women. He elevated them above the culture around them and loved them and invited them to be part of his community. If you want to know how God treats different ethnic groups, look at how he handles the woman at the well in Samaria who is both a woman who he should not be talking to in, 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 in an open space in the middle of the day, and he's a Samaritan who's a different ethnic group. It's like those people. Jesus loves those people, reaches across the boundary, and shows, challenges her for sure, but shows her love. If you want to know how God handles mercy or anger or illness or anything, like you can look to Jesus and see what he does with all of these, of all of these things. We don't have to wonder, man, what if God was one of us? Well, he was. Jesus is the key to kind of unlocking that and seeing, um, seeing how God would behave if he were in our situation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, I want to point you to this, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus brings about reconciliation. So Jesus doesn't just show us what God is like. Jesus actually brings about reconciliation. Listen again, starting with verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before him. Jesus brings about reconciliation. And he says, you were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. Now, that's an interesting thing. Here's Paul writing a letter to a people he's never met. And what does he say to them? He says, hey, you guys that I've never met at this lovely church in Colossae, um, here's what I know about you. You used to be, before you came to Jesus, you were alienated from God, and you were hostile in your mind, and you were doing evil deeds. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's the nicest thing to say to someone you've never met. I, was, I read that. I'm like, that's a little, that's a little rough. Um, it's probably not as bad as all that, is it? I mean, maybe the church of Colossae was full of nice people, and they met Jesus, and they got a little nicer. Maybe they just got like the cream of the crop over there. Maybe it was just like a really sweet bunch of people in Colossae, and, and, you know, then they, then they, and, they, and surprise, they also followed Jesus. Isn't that great? No, Paul says... Here's who you guys were. You were alienated from God. There's a separation. You were hostile in your mind, and you were doing evil deeds. How does he know that? Because it's true of all of us. It's true of himself. Paul knows who he used to be. It's true of him, who he used to be. It's true of all of us outside of a relationship with Jesus. We are all broken. We are all sinners, and our sin breaks stuff. It breaks things in us, and it breaks things between us, and it breaks things between us and God. It causes a separation, alienation there. And that's hard for us to wrestle with because we've become desensitized as a culture to what sin is. We have plenty of examples of evil. Even this week, another school shooting this week. And I saw the AP Newswire, and I looked at the story, and I was like, I, this is awful. 
And we look at that and we go, God, when, when are you going to make this right? When, when will this world be healed? Because it's so broken. And we look at that thing and we say, this is evil and this is dark and this is wrong. And it is. It is evil. But sometimes in pronouncing something else as evil, we end up letting ourselves off the hook. We go, oh man, serial killers are terrible. But me, I'm not bad. I just lied to my parents a little bit. I just told my friends I was going to do something and then didn't actually show up. It's actually not that big of a deal. The other things are evil. I'm not evil. I'm not really that bad. I'm, I'm fairly good is, is sort of what we think. But, but I think how we relate to our sin is kind of like how our culture relates to sugar. I read a really good book a couple months ago called The Hacking of the American Mind by a neuroscientist named Dr. Robert Lustig. And he talks about, among other things, um, he talks about sugar in our culture and in our diet. And here's what he points out. Um, We have, in case you didn't know, we have way too much sugar in our diet. Is this news to anybody? Okay. But it's it's so insidious. It's like you don't even notice it, right? Like if you said, man, I'm going to cut out sugar, and anyone who's tried to do this for like a whole 30 or something, if you said, I need to cut sugar out of my diet, you're going to think like soda, right, which has like enough sugar to like kill a horse or something, um, or candy, or like sweets. Like I'm not going to have those cookies. I'm not going to eat those brownies, right? That, we think let's cut out sugar. But the problem is sugar's in everything in the grocery store except like broccoli, um, <laughs> So we're like, oh man, it's, what's the deal? And that is a new phenomenon. Right around 1970 when fat was cut out of the diet and low fat was the hotness, it was replaced with sugar because low fat food tastes terrible so it was replaced by sugar. And sugar became, and he says in the book, sugar used to be a spice like cinnamon or basil or sage or something like that. Just a spice. It's one of the options, right? It went from being a spice to a staple. It is now like the heart of everything. And and. And he says, we're paying some serious health consequences for that. And I would just say, and what Paul is getting at when he says we're alienated and our deeds are evil, um, I think there's something similar going on there, that we are, our sugar gauge is broken. We don't even know what sweet is because we, we've, we've so had that dial moved by how much sugar is in our food that normal amounts of sweet, like a strawberry or something, just doesn't even register on the scale. You have to cover with chocolate before I notice it, you know what I mean? And, and the same thing has happened with sin. We, the gauge is broken in us. We didn't even notice it because we think it's the really bad stuff when the reality, all of it can cause separation. What was, um, we say, man, you know, I'm not sin. I mean, come on, I'm not that bad. I, I just mess up a little. But the truth is we consume so much sin that we don't even notice. What was a spice is now a staple for us. And it causes hostility, and it alienates us from God, and it causes separation from God. And here's the good news. God loves us so much, and he wants to be in a relationship with us. And when we walk away and say, nah, I'm not interested, God says, no, no, come here. Be in a relationship with me. And Jesus, the the word Paul uses here over and over, Jesus reconciles us. When you have two warring parties and you bring them to the table and bring them together, that is reconciliation. And this is what Jesus does. When he dies on the cross, he reconciles us to God um, and and brings us that reconciliation on the cross. Uh, Theologian Peter Kreef says, the cross is a great wooden syringe plunged into the ground from heaven. The cross uh, enters the world and and it brings about our, our healing brings the medicine of what, cure, what, 
what cures our sick souls. Jesus reworks our hearts and minds and souls, and he changes us into, and he makes us into who we were called to be. This is really good news. It's why we worship. It's why we gather. It's why Jesus is such a big deal, because he changes people. He has throughout history, and he is still doing that today. I want to bring up on stage someone who has had her life changed by God in the last several years here at our church. This is Elizabeth Boss. Come on out. Um, Elizabeth has been part of Area 10 for maybe six or seven years, and uh, she has a story to tell, and, I, and I've wanted her to tell it for some time, and I thought this would be a good opportunity for you to hear something about how God has worked in her life and change has come about. Um, Elizabeth, uh, probably five, six, seven years ago, things were spiraling pretty badly for you. Um, tell us a little bit about that story of where you were then. Well, I'm Elizabeth, and I'm a person in long-term recovery, and what that means for me is I haven't had a drink of alcohol since February 9th, 2013, by the grace of God. So, thank you. Um, life was a little bit different before that date. Um, my alcoholism was quite like the coin well at Maymont. I circled around it for many years and then quickly began to um, spiral out of control. Um, I lived my life in a series of check boxes. Um, you know, good job, I've done this, I've done this. But all that served to do was keep me in denial about my disease because my yets hadn't started happening. Well, I've done this, you know, I'm, I'm drinking, yeah, things aren't great, but this hasn't happened yet and that hasn't happened yet until my yet started happening. And in the end, I was a daily blackout drunk. I was on the verge of losing my son. Um, I was unemployed and I was a person who... I would look in the mirror every morning at myself and not recognize the person looking back at me. Um, I was, would shake so bad I had to use both hands to put on my mascara and I would make promises, I'm not doing this again tonight. And by three o'clock I was usually feeling better and those promises that I'd made to myself that morning were fleeting and, and almost like a punch of the gut because the thought of not drinking just... It, it took the wind out of my sails. And so I would resolve to drink that night and you know, try again tomorrow. And as soon as I would make that resolve, it was like I could breathe again. And my mood was immediately lifted. And this was the insanity that I lived in on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So you said something changed on February 9th, 2013. Walk us through that. Where did God show up for you in that? So the, the evening, um, I, was, I was in the midst of custody litigation and things were just, um, I was sneaky drinking and, and, you know, life was just, it was, it was pretty bad. And um, I had lots of bottoms throughout my drinking, but what I eventually had was a turning point um, of the divine nature. Um, I was opening a bottle of wine and God showed up in my kitchen. You know, it wasn't like, Elizabeth, you're done now. But it was kind of like that. Something was different. I was opening this bottle of wine, and I just stopped. I knew this was it. And I said goodbye to my wine bottle opener, which is just corny. And, but I, I got emotional with it, and I said goodbye. And I said, thank you for getting me through you know, everything that we've walked through, but it's time for us to part ways because you're not doing for me what you used to do, <laughs> and life's just getting very bad. And I said goodbye, and I threw it away, and... Um, I ended up, you know, and, and from that night forward, the obsession and compulsion for alcohol was removed, which is an absolute miracle. Um, I ended up checking, going to camp a couple days later, also known as rehab, 
And, um, you know, there I loaded up my spiritual toolkit and um, came home and, um, but what that gave me was a great opportunity to get away from the props that I was using to kill myself on a daily basis. Um, I still remember the two days before, or the day before I left, I was sitting in church here and you had someone uh, speak. What's Jake? Jason. Jason. Jason Jaker. And he said, fear will keep you from great failure, but it will also keep you from great success. And that just so resonated with me. And, you know, even the next day when I was getting ready to go to, to rehab, um, getting my affairs in order, it's like, oh, you know what? You can get good and drunk and check in tomorrow. And I just said, no, I'm not doing that, you know? It's, and that was God in that moment. Um, that was all God there. So I went away, um, got what, you know, loaded up my spiritual toolkit and came home and jumped into 12-step recovery. So how has... God um, been at work in your life, I guess, in the last five years then since you went through that process? Well, automatically, my faith began to deepen. And I realized, I know for years, I thought my relationship with God had to look like yours or yours and yours. I didn't realize it was such a personal thing, that it was mine, and it's personal, and it's beautiful, and it's precious. And, you know, I can be in that place safe and protected because for years the line between God and I was was broken because of my behavior. I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I, but I wasn't willing at the time to 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 stop because I didn't know how. And so automatically that line between us was reopened, and I was able to receive and accept and just let this grace just wash over me and and you know life since then life's not always you know life gets lifey but it's not so big anymore when these things happen mm. um you know i make a decision you know turn my will and my life over to the care of god and i walk through these things and um you know i ask each day for him to be a lamp to my feet and a light into my path and you know to try to not be a jerk and if i am i promptly admit it when i'm wrong and um you know i do the things that i've been taught and this relationship is just the most beautiful and precious thing in my life and all i've got to be is the clay and one day at a time i'm becoming the woman the mother the daughter sister friend employee that god intends me to be mm. That's so good. Well, thank you for being willing to share your story. I know that's hard, and there's a, so much backstory that, yeah. that we didn't get to, but thank you so much thank for sharing you. that with us. Thanks for letting me be of service. You know, Elizabeth and I have talked many times over the years, and one of the things that's always struck me is her honesty about some things when we, when we start getting into stuff. And because for her, things you know, did spiral out of control, and then you go, well, okay, I'm not in charge of my life, or I'm not God anymore, which is actually the realization all of us need to get to. Um, I, I've told her before, I said, I think, people, I think people in recovery programs are the same as the rest of us. They're just bringing it out and getting more honest about it. The rest of us are still hiding, manipulating, pretending to be something that, that we're not. Um, and so I think it, right now, I think if we got honest, if you get honest in your own heart and your gut, I think you would say, well, I'm not perfect. I think everybody in this room, very quickly, if I said, are you perfect? They'd be like, no, I'm not perfect. But are you willing to say, I'm actually not even that good? Like, if we're going to be honest here, there's darkness in me. There's a brokenness in me. And I have, I have messed things up. And I need forgiveness and I need reconciliation because there's pride or porn or, or, or drugs or alcohol or gossip or slander or there are just things in me that I, that I wouldn't want to come out into the light. 
and I need to be forgiven. The need for forgiveness is so deep in us as societies, as individuals. Um, One writer who wrote about it some is Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway had a very broken relationship with his parents. And he wrote a story, a short story one time. And it was about a father who had a broken relationship with his son. And this father, uh, this was in Spain, the the son moved to Madrid to get away from dad. And, and, And the father realized, hey, I need to reconcile and make things right with my son. And so he reaches out to the newspaper and he takes out an ad in the El El Liberal newspaper in Madrid. He takes out an ad and it says, uh, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana Square at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Well, Paco is actually a pretty common name in Spain. And so when that father went there to meet his son in that square on noon on Tuesday, 800 men named Paco showed up to be forgiven by their father. There's a deep need in us for forgiveness. What is the big deal about Jesus? Why do we still talk about him today? Because he got up on a cross and he died so that you and I could come to the square and have all forgiven. It doesn't matter how bad you've been or what you've done. The truth is, All is forgiven, Paco. All is forgiven. Now, what's our response to this? Two things, and then we're done. Number one, our response is to be baptized. If you have never been baptized, if you've never given your life to Christ, we are going to baptize people here on the stage next month, and I want you to be a part of it. Say, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm I'm in, and I'm going to give my life to him and be baptized. Uh, We will immerse you in water. We will bring you back up, I promise. But it's a picture of of the old you, going away and being buried like Jesus was buried underground and the new you coming back up and resurrected and being raised again. We're going to celebrate that next month. I would love for you, if you've not been baptized, write baptism on your connection card and turn it into us today. We will reach out to you. We have people reach out to you and talk to you, talk it through. Uh, that's going to be a great celebration. So if you've not done that, if you were baptized as a child, someone poured water on you, you didn't know what was going on. I'm talking about you making a commitment of your own free will to follow after Jesus. Say, I'm going, I'm going to follow him. If you haven't done that, please do that. That, That's that's the first step on this reconciliation journey. And the second response, if you have been baptized, uh, let let me give you this, finishing out this section again, starting with verse 21. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, he says, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's challenge to these believers at Colossae, and to us as well, is this. Stick with it. Stay with what you've learned. Stable and steadfast is what he says. When, when, when these believers heard this message, Christianity was not dominant in the culture. It wasn't like cathedrals everywhere and like popes and like rosaries and, and all of that kind of stuff. It was an underground ragtag band of like the rebel alliance. That's what Christianity was. They were like working together quietly and secretly trying to meet and, 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 and hang out and believe this thing. And they lived 
such countercultural lives among their Roman neighbors that eventually they influenced and changed the culture and millions of people eventually gave their lives and were baptized in, into Christ. And Paul reminds them right there at the beginning, and I want to remind you too, do not run when it gets hard. Do not run when you find something that you don't like. You're going to hear me say something from the scriptures. You're going to read something in the Bible. You're going to hear something at church, at this church, at another church somewhere. You're going to hear something you don't like, and it's going to challenge you because you're a 21st century American, right? And so we're going to look at the world one way, and you're going to hear something that challenges you. Don't run because you can run to another community, another church, a non-church. You can run to some corner of the internet where somebody will tell you what you want to hear, but that is not truth. Stick with it and dive deep, especially when it hurts. Be stable. Paul says, be stable and steadfast. That's the challenge for us. Now, now how do we do that? How can we stick with this? That's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. That's, that's the heart of this rooted idea. What does it look like for us to be rooted in Christ? How can we do that? So, so come back next week and we'll, we'll pick it up there. Let's pray. God, may we be the people who are rooted in you, who are stable and steadfast and pursue after you. And God, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know you, uh, I I pray today is the turning point, that today is the day that uh, we realize our brokenness and we stop pretending to be something we're not. Um, Work in us, Lord. Um, I pray that uh, people in this room step up in courage to um, give their lives to you, to be baptized into you, and to, and to follow after you with the way they live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.